continue our look into uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, as we just read, this will entail um, a look a little bit more at the local church. Because you see uh, the, the members and the body and all that kind of stuff and how all these uh, gifts relate to the local church. So those are things that we will be dealing with uh, after uh, we get done with the uh, look at each of these tongues. And so today... We want to look at the gifts of discernment and then the gifts of tongues, which we will deal with the, the most of the tongues later on, especially in chapter 13, 14. Um, but we want to, uh, since it's mentioned here, uh, give some introductory statements about that as well. But uh, last week, we saw that the gift of miracles were temporary sign gifts. That does not mean that God still doesn't work miracles as he sees fit, but I do not believe that somebody has the gift of miracles as it was in the New Testament where they can exercise it at their will. Again, a gift that cannot be verified, a miracle that cannot be verified to me is certainly not a miracle after the New Testament. In other words, you have a lot of people saying they have miracles, but when you investigate it, you, nobody really can be sure about it. So I take that as you know, a grain of salt. That's not to say that the power of Satan is not active in demons and that the Lord does not allow there to be activity that uh, we cannot explain that would be called miracles uh, and, and perhaps miracles uh, in, in a sense of a demonic. Not to say that that does happen. I'm not saying that. Uh, we don't see miracles in a Christian among Christians at some point. But the gift of miracles, as we see it in the New Testament, I believe is a sign gift. And then we talk about how that there were only three time periods in the Bible when miracles were the norm. Uh, at, uh, during the life of Moses, uh, Elijah, and Elijah and Elisha. And then, of course, with Jesus and the apostles. And so they were signs that a change was taking place or going to take place. They were These things were never the norm. And uh, for those to say that, well, it's the norm in the church age, uh, there, there's never been a time when they were the norm. And I, don't, I think that kind of works against them. Um, then, finally, we looked at prophecy, which is a gift to clearly and boldly proclaim God's word without fear of how it is to be received. Remember, that was always one of the big issues uh, in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the Lord says, do not fear men. This is what I want you to say. And in, in some cases, they were told they're not going to like this and they're going to uh, abuse you because of it. But you are a prophet called of God. You are to proclaim it. And that's always been the standard. Uh, in the Bible as far as what prophecy is. It is not just something where somebody is telling uh, what's going to happen tomorrow or something like that. I thought this is an interesting verse that goes maybe helping understand prophecy in Revelation 19.10 where it says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, that is the angel. Uh, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so I think, again, prophecy is proclaiming Christ. Prophecy is uh, proclaiming the word of God and how Christ is seen in the word of God. And so today we look at the gifts of discernment and tongues. 
And as we continue to look at these gifts mentioned in this chapter, we're only mentioning or talking about the gifts mentioned in the chapter, not every gift. I will save that for when we are in those texts. Uh, but in the, that's what we're doing here in the first part of chapter 12. And so uh, the first one today is the gift of distinguishing the spirit or distinguishing uh, of discernment is another way, I think, to uh, say this, the gift of discernment. And that's, again, when we say that, that can mean a lot of different things. And so we want to try to clarify what uh, that means biblically. Clearly, there is the need to be able to discern, uh, and just on any level, but this is a spiritual gifts, so and these are gifts that go beyond the norm. But I think there is a sense in which we can understand that the gift of discernment is a normal gift. It is a gift that all should attain to, to some degree, to have discernment, right? To have wisdom, to be able to, to, to under, to, to understand What's going on? What what somebody says? What they mean? And, and things like that. But uh, we need somebody. We need people who have the gift to be able to not be fooled and to see uh, error and things like that. And so I think there's a, some of that we'll see is part of what the gift would entail. Um, you think about uh, the lies and the deceitful way that Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, and just that mere phrase, if Satan obviously tries to infiltrate churches through error, through appearing to be truth, but not, you've got to have some measure of discernment to to be able to, to not be deceived. And this was especially important in the early church for uh, obvious reasons. They didn't have the complete completed scriptures, uh, as a benchmark that they could judge all things. So there would be times when things were said and done where someone would be gifted by God to say, no, this is not from God. And in a way that we perhaps wouldn't need since we have the full revelation. And now we can, when we hear things and see things, we have the full revelation to say, wait just a minute. But that's a gift in and of itself that, that some can do that and some can do it well and, and some cannot uh, you know, some people are more gullible than others, and, and some, when they hear something, just buy into it. And at least initially, right? And then you need somebody who can sit back and say, "Wait just a minute, now, what's going on here? You know, what? You know, what? Let me let me think about this for a while." And, and that's discernment. And that's a gift that not all have the same at all. And so, those who hold that these gifts would continue today. In the same way, uh, would uh, say, well, we need the gift of discernment because um, when things are going on today, uh, someone gives a word of knowledge. We need someone who's there to say, yes, what this person's saying is true and so forth. So you'd see in a charismatic setting why people would say that we still need it in much the same way they need it in the, in the early days because we got people with these stating that I have a gift or a word from God, a, a revelation. We need somebody who can say, yes, it's true. But you see, the problem, of course, is that uh, now you're just dependent upon them, and uh, it, it all gets very nebulous. It can't be confirmed. So they would be dependent on these people because if they get it wrong, there's real problems. In other words, if I stand up and say, okay, this is what God has told me, and there's nobody uh, to... Uh, confirm it, 
then, you know, what do we do? You know, you don't know. So it's important for me, anyway, when I think about this, that Paul never develops this as part of the norm in the instruction of the local church. In other words, he tells Timothy, for instance, to study to be approved by God as a, uh, you know, as a pastor, you need to study so you know what to preach and you understand uh, the word of God. There's never a reference to a special revelation as a supplement to preaching and teaching. You think about it. You know, the, the, the command was to learn, to study, to proclaim God's word. There was never saying, now there's some, this guy over here in the, in the, in the uh, church is going to be listening to the pastor, uh, the elders as they teach, and he might say, wait, just a minute, he's, that's an error. And so when he says that, then the pastor says, well, I've made a mistake and we move on. You know, there, there's nothing like that. That's not to say, again, that you have people, as you grow, and the pastor does say something that is wrong or that uh, is maybe needs to be dealt with, that, that happens. But that's the normal course of study and of growing in the Lord. And so that there were gifts of tongues and revelation. Somebody had to know, be able to know if they were from God or not, uh, since they didn't have the full canon to test them, but that no longer uh, is needed today. And there's never a reference to a special revelation as a supplement to preaching and teaching. So as with many of these gifts, there were special ways in which they were used in the early church, but I do believe they continue today but in relation to a completed canon. So it's not that we need someone to be able to discern uh, the spirits in, in the sense that, well, you know, we're not sure about these things because now that we have God's full revelation, we can study for ourselves in a sense. But there still are deceivers today and probably more than ever. Or, you know, I, I can't imagine... There's any less deceivers today than there were before. Some who are well-versed in Scripture and who are sensitive to what gets to the heart of glorifying Christ and the heart of Scriptures, I believe, have a gift to discern when someone comes in with motives uh, that are are not proper uh, in their ministry, uh, who are subtly changing the word of God to fit their agenda, I believe that the, every church needs those who can say, no, this is wrong. And, and, and obviously I think it should go without saying that the elders, that, that's one of the things the elders are for. They're supposed to be uh, competent enough in the word of God that they can uh, spot error. And you say, well, wait just a minute. Even even elders have you know can be have error. And what we're talking about here, though, is dangerous air. You know, we can have differences on gray areas, on, on the tertiary uh, issues, things that, you know, people can differ on, Christians can differ on, and that's okay. We're talking about uh, deceit, uh, errors that are, that, that are, that are dishonoring to the Lord, that will d- divide, that will disrupt people's faith. Serious things is what we're talking about here. And the elders should be able to spot, not that others can't, but the elders at least should be able to discern when someone comes in and they start uh, we, their uh, their faith or their understanding of scripture is uh, goofy is, is lopsided. 
we might say. No doubt some have just had a, a bad feeling about someone after being around them because they necessarily, not, not because they necessarily had an impression by the Spirit, the Spirit told them, but because they're spiritually minded enough and they know the Bible well enough to know that when this person's talking, something's not right. But we've got to be careful there because it's easy to have a bad first impression. You know, we could just have a bad day. And so we always have to be able to, and again, discernment says, okay, I'm going to, well, I've got to judge this by the word of God. I'm not going to let my first impression necessarily uh, be the one that uh, I go with, right? Because sometimes first impressions can be quite wrong. But just the attitude one has sometimes affects the way we take things. And that doesn't mean that they were wrong. But because words and attitudes weren't measured up to the Bible, uh, someone with this gift can look at this, can look at a situation, and can can see the problem. And the Lord give, has given them insight into that. And I don't have any problem with, with believing that still happens and is, is important. But I think it's something that we all should be striving for. for to me, a gift of, of the spirits and discernment isn't a, a gift that uh, someone just gets unless they have studied the word of God and they have some maturity in the things of God. I don't think God just gives it to, you know, someone gets saved and two months later all of a sudden he's uh, got the gift of discernment uh, and it is helping uh, the church understand uh Good doctrine and so forth. It, it comes through uh, the understanding of the scripture. So while it should be every person's goal to be a discerner, uh, as we grow in faith, uh, in fact, First uh, John four one, we love it. This is, a, this is a an epistle to the churches, not to a pastor. It's to everybody. It says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God." He's not talking about you know, you got demons activity and, and all this, and you're not you're not sure if this is demonic. And that's not necessarily what he's talking about here. He's, he's talking about someone comes into the church and there's just something about this person, not initially, not your your first impression again, because that can be off and you, that can be mistaken. But there's just but you, you start to hear them talk and you, and you and you maybe hear what they how they understand God's word and how they explain it. How they how they deal with the Christian life and holiness something's off. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and so certainly it means when you turn on the TV and you hear the TV preachers, if if you do that for some reason, or read a book, uh, you need discernment to see to know whether what you're hearing is truth, because there's a lot of deceivers out there. And by this you know the Spirit of God. So how do you test? How, how does the discernment come? By a feeling that, you know, well, I just, you know, I, this guy's coming to the church and I just got a feeling about him. But I'm off. Dude. Something's off. Well, that again, that's subjective. Who knows? I think John gives us the answer here. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is coming to flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, that's not a full statement about all this, but what is it saying? You, you test the spirits by truth. Those who profess the truth 
of the Bible are true. Those who do not are not. So the basis of the faith would tell us what the spirit behind it is. This was a general command to all saints uh, to be able to recognize uh, fact from fiction when it comes to the word of God. Uh, another verse here in Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Now those Jews were more noble than those of Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. See, the gift of discernment is not a bypass for study and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Bereans were more noble because they, when they listened to things, they, they went to the scriptures to see, to test, to test the spirit, to test what they had heard. Is this true or not? They didn't just say, okay, uh, who's got the gift of discernment? You tell us whether this is right or not. And I don't want to study God's word. I don't care enough to study. I, you know, it, it doesn't mean anything to me. You tell me so I can just have the easy way out. Well, of course, that, that's never found in scripture. So that would seem to be the norm. And if you had someone who had a gift of discernment beyond this, and there's no real need for anyone to study. We, we'd grow lazy because, you know, let's just let so-and-so. It's kind of like the old uh, life commercial, life cereal commercial, right? Get Mikey, he'll eat anything. He'll get a little, the little uh, kid brother. He'll eat anything. Uh, he'll, I don't know if this is good cereal. Well, get Mikey to try it, right? Let him know. And that's how it would be. You know, just let so-and-so answer the questions. And, and he's got the gift of the sermon. I don't have it. And it becomes a, a source of laziness. So I don't think any would argue that if it remains today, but no one has it in an infallible way where they can stand up and say, uh, I, the, the Spirit is upon me and telling me that this is wrong or this is right, and it, it becomes, in a sense, an inspired word. I would be very wary of anything like that. And I'm not aware of anyone being recognized as infallibly able to discern all error. Because if you have the gift of discernment, then why would you, why would you have any error, right? And you, you would, people would assume you probably don't. And again, that creates its own problems. But there are many today who go around and tell us that they have the infallible word. And I'm not talking about the Pope. Um, I'm not going there at all. But there are those who say that their words become the final say so in everything. And, but that's who uh, we understand these people are crazy, arrogant, dictator, dictatorial charlatans. Uh, they, they're the ones who produce the cults because their word is law. They, they know, they have it all figured out. And when you think about how Mormonism started, things like that. But every church needs those who can spot danger and recognize, we might say, the good grass from the weeds. This is truth. This is doctrine that is helpful. This is doctrine that is askew, that they've overemphasized one thing or another, and to follow that is going to cause deformity. Someone made the point that it takes times and places where Christianity is acceptable, where we really need these, this kind of gift. And the point is that under the church under persecution doesn't have a whole lot of fake people coming in. And a lot of walls to cheap clothing because uh, the, 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 the hypocrite's not going to risk his life or persecution for what he really doesn't believe, right? 
So in places of persecution, you don't have all the, as many problems with false doctrine as you've got in a church like where there's no persecution, where uh, people can take Christianity and make it into something where they can get rich or get power or something like that. You've got a lot more need for the gift in a situation like we might find ourselves in America. And I think that's a, a good point to make. One reason why we spend time dealing with the different ways error creeps into the church is uh, from the culture and, and the cults all around us. And so we can recognize the subtleties of how people are trying to completely change what the Bible teaches. In other words, I offer as an example what we've been doing on here over the last 20 years or so in America where you've got so-called preachers and Christians at large who have subtly, they still call themselves Christians, but they have gone off into wokeism or into uh, denying some sins to be sin at all. Through, through, through subtle subtlety, they are confusing God's people and they are leading them away from the gospel. And so we need people who can stand up with discernment and say, no, this is wrong, and this is why it is wrong. We don't need people who can just point out that it's wrong, but can also explain to us why it's wrong. We can fill in the void. Even otherwise sound teachers can pick up psychology and philosophy and popular thinking from the culture around them and not realize it. And even an elder can do it. A pastor can do that. You you start reading after somebody, you start hearing something, and you can subtly lose your focus on preaching the gospel of Christ and start to emphasize doctrines and things that in and of themselves might not be wrong, but you, 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 you've lost your focus. I'll deal with that here in just a moment. It should be a continuing prayer for me and Jeff to not get caught up in the subtle errors that can get us to focus on things other than Christ. As I said, yeah, we all have error. We all, no one has a perfect understanding of Scripture, but we're talking about those things that can be detrimental to people's lives that are too dangerous and obvious to tolerate. And so one of the most important areas where this, where especially leaders need discernment is to be able to stay focused on the gospel and keep us focused on Christ and being conformed to his image. And I've tried to say that, you know, periodically to make sure we understand that I am here to preach the word so that we can, first of all, know Christ as a save in a saving way, but also to know him as our Lord and to be able to serve him, to be conformed to his image. That, that's the point. Everything we're doing is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That takes on a lot of different forms, a lot of things going on there, but that's that's the point. And and so, if, for instance, I start getting skewed, where instead of preaching the text and Christ and always getting us back to, to glorifying the Lord, all of a sudden you notice that my preaching is more about politics. Or it, it seems to be mostly focused on abortion. And I almost didn't list that. Because abortion is a bad, is, is a, it should cause, it's, it's a big thing. 
It's it's murdering infants. So I don't want to pretend that or act like it. It's not important. But it's not the gospel. It's in other words, it's it's something that we understand. Once we understand the gospel, once we understand the word, we can deal with abortion, right? But my ministry is I've been called to preach Christ, not to uh, preach against abortion. That that's kind of my point there. Or or a preacher maybe gets all involved in prepping up for the second coming or prepping for the coming economic apocalypse. And there are preachers to do that. That's their focus. That's their worry. Maybe my preaching would be uh, a lot on finances, on dress, music, smoking, drinking, or any number of things that have been used by preachers and laymen to get everyone all in a tither over an issue and, and forget that. No, wait, 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 just a minute. We've got to stay, we got to stay well-rounded in this thing. We're, we're to build each other up in Christ. And so it isn't that these other things aren't important in their own way. But they are not to be the primary focus of a Christian. And that's the thing. I was thinking about this. Um, I, hardly anybody was here when I uh, was, well, I mean, some of you were here when I uh, candidated. But I remember I was asked, we're in the uh, fellowship hall, and I was building questions. And uh, one of the ladies uh, asked me, and I had already preached a couple of times, and she, she seemed to be a, a under, couldn't understand why I hadn't talked about abortion yet. And uh, I still remember this. And, I, and so I, I said, look, I haven't you know, spoken on that, but no one is against abortion more than I am. So that's not an issue. And I, and I kind of went on a little bit about that. But she, in her mind, that, that I hadn't really brought that subject up as a bother to her. And so I went, of course, of course, she took her and her husband out away. I think it, it's over another issue. But um, but that, that could be the thing. And again, I'm not 100% sure, but it just struck me as odd that, that, that she asked that question the way she did. Like, that's what matters. So I go to the church because of their stance on abortion or whatever, and not that they're preaching the truth, but that my issue, that, you know, I, that's what I want to hear about my issue. See? And that, that's maybe be an example. And it seems that this gift was absent, or certainly not being used very well in the Corinthian church. Can we not see that? They're arguing over gifts, right? And we've seen, uh, as we've gone through this chapter, they're arguing about who should get married, who should get remarried, uh, you know, uh, what, can you have sex or not, you know, all this kind of stuff, who to follow. Um, all sorts of errors and division that were in the uh, Corinthian church. Evidently, they didn't have uh, anyone discerning who could stand up and say, look, you guys are, have lost your focus. Uh, you guys are all worried about gifts and look at the way you're treating each other at the um, Lord's table or at the, at the love feast. But Paul must have the gift of discernment because he writes this letter and, and, and sets them straight, right? So, so I would think the Corinthian church at this point didn't have anybody who was all that discerning. Lost my uh, going on and on here. I've lost my place in my notes. So give me a second here, make sure I don't lose anything. I'm always amazed how some accept anything that uh, has Jesus' name on it. 
because you see it all the time in the music industry because you know you've got people right in the Christian music that really had, doesn't even talk about music. You know, it, people, it, it's 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 in the Christian genre, so therefore it's good. And, and, if you, and if you question, say, wait just a minute, is this song in the biblical or what's going on here? They look at you like you're crazy, like you're just a judgmental uh, fundamentalist or something like that. And like the Asbury Revival, or whatever you want to call it. You know, people just say, wait just a minute, does this look like the historical revivals? Does it meet the criteria? Uh, there's some things here that we... We're not sure about, and just to bring it up, sends people into the crazy, you know, they, they can't handle it, because there's no discernment, because, that, that, and that's, I think, a good example of why we need the gift of discernment. If one has this gift, they are probably able to distinguish not just error, but perhaps the motivation of those that are doing harm in the church. Now, I say this guardedly, because it's never a good idea to assume you know What's in somebody's heart? So let me, let me just say that right off the bat. But uh, the gift of discernment would eventually be able to see that something's wrong in the motivation here. It doesn't usually take long to begin to see a spirit that is uh, off kilter. It's more about self than it is about Christ, for instance. But obviously that can't, that can be a problem in itself. Since attempting to know what's in the heart of somebody else is always a dangerous game. And so I don't think that's the way you, that's not the, what, the focus. On one level, we never can know what's going on in somebody else's heart. And we need to be very careful and clear. With, because I, I've seen damage done when somebody assumes they know why somebody did something. Instead of asking and finding out. They just they make all these assumptions because they have uh, they they know what's going on in somebody else's mind and heart. And we've got to be very careful there. But what the Bible does tell us to do is that it says you can know them by their fruit. So I don't know necessarily what's going on in your heart, but what I can see is what it's producing in your life. What it's produced what your influence is producing in the church, right? And then we say, now, you know, no matter what your motivation is, the fruit is bad, right? And that's where we need to be, where we need discernment. But it seems that some have the insight to discern the spirits, but it must be exercised humbly and patiently, lest one becomes critical and proud and self-righteous, and their gift becomes useless. So, to have, to be, to be a discerning person, to be a spiritually minded person who can discern is a needed gift, but it, it is one that can be misused, that can do harm. Because now all of a sudden, I, you know, you, sometimes you joke around, I have the gift of discernment. Well, you know, we take that with a grain of salt. We know you're joking because that's a very dangerous thing. And you got to be very humble about it, and you got to test the spirit. you got to you, you test, you, you talk with other people, you read the Word of God. You don't no one should ever think that I can just, I know the answers to everything that's going on. And so one way this is manifested is to be able to step back and look at someone's overall life. Is they say that someone's caught in a fall. And, and as a preacher, I say this because preachers are the ones who really get hammered at this. I think a 
preacher does something wrong, and, and I realize that there's a standard there that preachers get held to, you know, right or wrong. And everybody, you know, calling for his, you know, his head, or, or in a cap, anybody. So someone, someone sins, someone, or someone just does something that, you know, everybody knows shouldn't have been done. It was a, a mistake, if, if, if not a sin. And well, ready to write them off because they made a mistake. And and I think that's that's a they're not exercising discernment because they're not they're forgetting that they're just sinners saved by grace and that you know they don't give another some a chance to say you know he's made a mistake he's not perfect let let's give him a chance let let's let's see if there will be repentance if there will be a change if he'll acknowledge it you know. We just we just write them off, and that's always a problem that you need people with discernment to be able to say, "Wait just a minute, and let's look at this calmly. Let's look at this biblically, rationally, and then we make our uh, uh, our decisions." Because again, we live in a day and age in which, as soon as somebody does wrong, they are immediately uh, canceled. There's 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 no patience anymore. There's no uh, I'm going to sit. I'm going to Think this through. I'm going to find out all the facts before I make a, a decision. Nothing like that. It, it's just bam, 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 cancel. They're gone, and that is just a, a think, I, I think a good sign that uh, when you that there is no discernment in that situation. All right. So anyway, there's some things about some observations about that particular uh, gift. Let's just finish up by making a, just a few comments about tongues and the interpretation of it. That we uh, see here in our text. As I said, we'll save the bulk of this for chapter 14. But let me reiterate what seems clear to me what the main purpose of tongues was uh, from the beginning. And I've talked to so many of you at different times that I sometimes think, well, I've already talked about this. If I said that, because I can't keep it all straight. So if I repeat myself, that that's okay. But that might be why. But uh, the, the main purpose of tongues from the beginning, what does the Bible tell us about that? And we're looking at it, especially in a New Testament context. And we notice in Acts 2, uh, this was said, all, you know, all the, the apostles were in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them, right? Jesus told them to wait there until you get the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon them, how did they know that was the manifest, that was the Holy Spirit? It says that they all spoke in languages, foreign languages, languages that people in Jerusalem who had come from other nations could understand, right? That, that proved, that was the proof that they had received the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to understand that because Acts 2 sets the pattern for what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts concerning tongues. Tongues was a proof that the Spirit had been, get, had been given. <clears throat> and so in Acts 2.17, and in the last day, this, uh, this is Peter explaining from Old Testament prophecy what's going on. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So that's the, that's the subject. That's the promise of the Old Testament. That when the new covenant comes, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. That, that's what the Old Testament saints did not have in good measure. Alright? So, 
the day is coming, and that's what Pentecost is, when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So, Peter is saying, when you see these uh, these men preaching in these foreign languages, that's proof of, that the spirit has been given. It was a sign that the kingdom had come and that Jesus was the Messiah King. The ones that they thought were drunk, the the unbelieving Jews thought that the disciples were drunk. And that's in accordance with uh, the Old Testament as well. Kyle, you asked about these uh, verses last week, and so I'm just going to deal with these quickly here. Uh the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. Isaiah 28:11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Uh, in look, turn over to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Paul actually quotes Isaiah 28 in the context of the tongues in the church, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now he's showing here why tongues aren't near as important as prophecy. But notice what he says. This is a description of what happened in Acts 2. The ones who God was saving heard a language in their own tongue. The ones who were rejecting Christ, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, heard a bunch of babble. And what Isaiah is saying, what Deuteronomy is saying, is that uh, that is God's judgment. The fact that you're hearing a language you don't understand, it lets you know that the prophecies come true, and that's God's judgment. And that's why he says that um, it's it's the tongues are not a sign for believers, because the believers uh, were heard. It. It's, it's the confusion of language was a sign for unbelievers. It was a it was a uh, it was a sign of judgment, God's judgment upon them. And then he quotes um, here in Isaiah chapter twenty-eight, and I will get to this. I'm not going to go into this anymore, but he, he'll quote that in that particular context. So the com- the conversion of the 3,000 when Peter was speaking at Pentecost, in the language they un- understood, uh, they weren't unknown babble, it wasn't babble, it was, uh, it was a language they understood and they, they, they were saved through it. The ones who didn't understand it were the ones who were the unbelieving Jews. Where God was Basically setting up a kingdom that they were not allowed to enter. And so it was a sign uh, that the Old Testament prophecies concerning these things were true. The Old Covenant was over. It was a sign of judgment, of rejection. And so Acts 2 sets this pattern then, getting back to the main point here, is that tongues were a sign. They, they were telling something about what's going on. They were never given to be the norm. And so as Acts continues... We find only two other times where tongues were given, and there is no indication that it was ever 
different tongues, that there was, that it was ever, uh, babble of some way, tongues that didn't make any sense. Uh, there, there's no indication as you read that that the tongues are any different. So I think we need to understand that. Each time was to indicate that they were given, that the people who were speaking to them had received the Holy Spirit, that the promise of the new covenant had come upon them. And so therefore tongues was not a second blessing that the Christians got later on. It was given to them when they received the Holy Spirit, when they were converted. And each time they understood that. Um, and so you see here in uh, Acts 10.45, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing and speaking in tongues and stolen God when Peter. Then Peter declared that, that. That goes really to the next verse. But, but you see there the idea, the same idea. When they saw the speaking in tongues, they could think of Pentecost, what happened in Pentecost, and they realized, hey, they received the Holy Spirit just like the apostles received the Holy Spirit. There's no confusion. It, it's just, Jesus told the, the apostles to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And in Acts, you have that, that same thing. You have the those in Jerusalem receiving the Holy Spirit. You eventually have those in Samaria receiving the Holy Spirit. And then you have those outside of Samaria, outside of Jerusalem. And so there's the same type of pattern as the apostles move on. So they were saved, but they didn't automatically start speaking in tongues because they wanted somebody from Jerusalem, a representative of the church, the apostles, to see them speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit come upon them and speaking in tongues, so they can say, yes, I know that not just Jews have received the Holy Spirit, but also the Samaritans have. Cornelius, here in, in Acts 10, this was with Cornelius, he was a Gentile. They could say, look, we know that the, God, that the kingdom has come, and it's not just for Jews, but it's for the whole world because we have seen each of these people groups receive the Holy Spirit. And speaking in tongues was, except for one case, always how uh, they uh, that was proven to them. So you see the importance of it. But I think it's interesting that there was one exception, one time, I think it was with the Samaritans, when they... They didn't receive the Holy Spirit until someone from Jerusalem could come up and look at it, but it doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. Maybe just to let everybody know that not everybody was going to speak in tongues. It wasn't a universal thing. It was something that was usually the case in Acts, but not always, just so nobody would think to come along and say, if you can't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian, which a lot of people do today. There's just no way, uh, biblically to say that. The only other time where we see someone speaking in tongues would be in chapter 19, where those who are converted under John the uh, Baptist ministry were given the Holy Spirit, uh, where where witnesses were there, uh, and then they spoke in tongues to show that they too had received the Holy Spirit. And that it wasn't something that happened. See, they were saved under John's ministry in the Old Testament. But they didn't receive the Holy Spirit then because the Holy Spirit wasn't given until Pentecost. And that's when it became the norm. 
for a believer to receive the Holy Spirit. So that little, in fact, that's the last uh, slide we'll look at, Acts 19. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, so in other words, Paul is explaining to them that uh, John was baptizing concerning the coming of Jesus. It wasn't Christian baptism. It was it was Old Testament baptism. It was you know God. It was you know something that God wanted to happen, but it wasn't actual baptism. So he says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. To show that they now had, uh, were now in the New Testament, they had been scripturally baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, not as a follower of John, a follower of Jesus Christ. And so now the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak in tongues, so that that little idea, those who are saved under John's ministry, what's going on with them, it kind of all comes to full circle and we understand what's going on. So, again, if you read the book of Acts, tongues, um, why tongues came is very obvious. They were assigned it. Now, obviously, in Corinthians, when you get to chapters 13 and 14, tongues will be mentioned again. Tongues were something that continued for a while. Uh, that, you know, So we'll deal with that when we get to it. But we're talking about languages. We're talking about uh, a, a gift of God to show that people were receiving the Holy Spirit. Just in a, in a closing thought, what you know, a lot of people today would say, "Well, look, you've been baptized. John the Baptist did it, but hey, you were baptized, so we're not going to do it. We'll, we'll let that. We'll take that." But no, they didn't do that. You, you weren't baptized for the right reason. You might have been baptized in the right mode, and no doubt they were with John. They were immersed, but they did not. They didn't do it. They didn't do it in view of Christ. They didn't understand what Christ was going, was happening. They weren't believers in Christ, and so they were rebaptized in a Christian uh, New Testament baptism. That's one reason then why we would do the same thing. That someone comes in here and they might have been baptized as an infant. Raised in a, in a Presbyterian church, baptized as an infant, might be a believer. You know, have a good profession of faith, and we accept their profession. But they weren't baptized scripturally because the scriptures shows people being baptized as they believe. Someone didn't baptize them in unbelief. They were so we would rebaptize them and to do it in the right way. And that, I think maybe it's just an example of why we would do that. But just some things to keep in mind when it comes to uh, speaking of tongues and that type of thing. Any any questions or comments before we get started?